The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that today as we approach the Scripture, that you would show us your Son, that we would have a clearer picture when we walk away from this building today about who you are and what you have done and how it is that you have shown such immense love for us. And Lord, I pray that we would see your righteousness and we would praise you and we would glorify you and we would be amazed at you. Please, Lord, give us right affections, that we would love you appropriately, that we would give honor to you rightly. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has never before trusted in Christ, that you would use this sermon to break down any barrier, anything that they are holding on to, and bring them to the end of themselves that they might indeed know Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I take a lot of things for granted. I think you probably do too, actually. I, I don't typically think much about electricity until all of a sudden a storm comes through and it's gone. And then I have no idea what in the world I need to do to get around my house or find anything. And I'm not typically thankful for the blessing of my car until mine breaks down and I have to walk everywhere. I don't even notice how far I'm traveling until I have to use my own feet to get there. Walking used to be a mode of transportation for most people, but now we call it exercise. But it should not take a loss of power or a blown head gasket for me to be thankful to God for the many, many, many ways that he has abundantly blessed me. And that's true for you as well. And today, we're going to consider one of the most important themes in all of the Bible, that God would dwell with man. And I think for those of us who are saved, this is one of those doctrines that we have criminally overlooked and that we have taken for granted. We, we just started this series last week where we're attempting to look at the big picture story of the entire Bible. So for seven weeks, we're going to take a few steps back. Normally, if you are here, you know that we preach from the beginning of a book to the end. We keep our nose close to the page and we read every single word. And that's really good and healthy as the primary diet of a local body. However, for a while, we are going to take a step back a little and look at the grand scope of the tapestry of all of God's word. So we're going to see how things play out thematically from the beginning to the end. Each one of these sermons is going to begin in Genesis, and they will all find their conclusion in Revelation. And the goal this morning is to take in with a wide lens the incredible love that God has for us, in the sense that we see him pursuing his people. Our approach this morning is to consider several specific ways that God is seen to dwell with man in the scripture. So let's dive in, starting as promised in the book of Genesis. We begin, of course, at the beginning with God. And God created man and woman, and he put them in the garden. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read about this creation of Adam and Eve, these viceroys of the earth. They were designed to promote and to spread the glory of God across the face of the entire planet. These two perfect individuals in whom there was no sin, they never suffered. 
And in their sinless state, they would never experience disease or death. But all of those blessings are nothing more than a drop in the bucket compared to the magnitude of the fact that they were able to dwell in the garden with God himself. They would talk with God. And it seems from what we read in Genesis 3 that they would often walk with him in the cool of the day. God was like their father, taking joyful time with them each and every afternoon. When I get home from work, I love that with my kids. I go in, and I just the first thing that I hear is, Daddy, 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 from every angle of the house. I love that. I love that. And it seems that that is the kind of loving, fatherly relationship that God had with Adam and Eve in the garden. But as you know, Adam and Eve failed by breaking the one law that God had given them. And for that sin, there were many punishments. However... The harshest of those punishments is found at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's Genesis 3, 23 through 24. Eden was this mountaintop sanctuary. It was this garden of God-filled dwelling. They had enjoyed a perfectly open relationship with God, something that is unimaginable to others throughout Scripture. They had delighted in His presence every day, and they had never known anything but a mutual joy wherein God delighted in His perfect creation, and His perfect creation delighted in Him. But sin always causes separation. Sin breaks and it destroys. And in particular, we see that it severed the unity that God had with man. And we learn from Romans 5.12 that this separation spread to all mankind because Adam stood as the head figure or representative of all people. So Adam and Eve were cast away from the presence of the Lord. But what do I mean when I say the presence of the Lord? Even my three-year-old son, Athanasius, or sorry, he just turned four last Sunday. My four-year-old son knows that God is everywhere. If you ask him the question, where is God? The answer, of course, is everywhere. So where is God? What do I mean by the presence of the Lord? Well, we have to understand that there is an element of this in which God is everywhere. The positive word that we use to explain this theologically is omnipresence. Omni meaning all and presence obviously meaning present. And we see this affirmed by David in Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10. You surely know these words. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol... You're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is in all places. The negative word that we use to explain this is the word immensity. The immensity of God, meaning that there is no place in all of existence that God is not. He is not limited. He is not confined by creation. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 tells us that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is me. That is you. That is every molecule in this entire universe are being held together in him. Where is God? He is, of course, everywhere. 
But as we saw last week with Moses on Mount Sinai, there are times and places when God chooses to manifest his glorious holy presence more brightly and fully. In the garden, Adam and Eve could abide in the glow of his glory, but after their sin, they were in darkness and they could never look again on the radiance of his splendor without being destroyed. So where is God in the Old Testament? He's always in all the places at all the times. He is everywhere ubiquitous. However, over the next several minutes, we're going to consider how God manifested his holy presence. And the one thing that I want you to see and remember throughout all of these examples is simply this, that God is not doing anything that we see happening here because he needs man. Not because he must have man's presence. He needs company. God does not require companionship from his creation. He was doing just fine for all eternity with the Trinity forever. But after Eden, the rest of the Bible is all about God's pursuit of Adam's race as he lovingly accomplished all that is necessary in order for God to once again dwell with us. So on rare occasions, God would communicate with individuals directly. We see this, for example, with Enoch or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. But this was not the normal pattern for all people. And the Bible never presents a uniform guideline for worship during these times. There is no specific location where you must go to speak directly to God. Instead, the pattern that we see at this time in history is that God himself would condescend in his timing to speak directly to them. My father worked as a chiropractor for 30 years. Uh, he had a practice called Alpha Care in Chanute, Kansas. And I had the privilege to work at that practice for about two years of my life. And I saw people who would come into that place who were twisted up like a pretzel who their spine was all in crazy directions. And over the course of time, that was able to be corrected and they were able to stand up straight and they were able to walk and they were able to move without pain. And it was incredible to see just how much fixing this one singular part of the body would be able to affect the overall health of the person by just focusing on the spine. The spine is the central part of the body. It affects everything else. We have been particularly praying for Jonathan um, we need to continue to pray for him. Jonathan knows right now because of lower back pain, he knows acutely just how much this can affect daily life. If your back is out, every part of you is out. You are done. The covenants are like the backbone of the Bible. As you trace through scripture, they give you the unveiling of God's perfect plan. And everything in the entire Bible is related to the covenants in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not going to do a deep dive on the covenants right now. There is a sermon on that later in the series that we'll consider. But for now, I want you to see that these covenants all revolve around one central principle. Theologian O. Palmer Robinson calls it the Emmanuel principle. Simply put, at the center of each covenant is God making himself present with man. There's a phrase that is used over 40 times in the Bible, and it is always connected to the covenants. And the most common version of it is found, for example, in Leviticus chapter 26, 12. What, are, what is going on in Leviticus 26? I think Leviticus might be one of the least well-known books of the Bible for many of us. What's happening in Leviticus 26? 
Well, this is the chapter where God offers a multitude of promises to the people if they would keep the Mosaic Covenant. And directly afterwards, he gives a plethora of curses that will come upon the people if they do not keep the covenant. But it is is in the conclusion of the list of blessings that we find in chapter 26, verse 12, this phrase, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That is the garden again. I will walk with you. I'm going to be with you and you'll be mine and I will be yours. That is the promise. Now, this promise is repeated, like I said, over 40 times throughout the Bible. And there is a promise of restoration that was lost by Adam and Eve. But where the relationship was broken, there will be restoration. Where there was animosity, there is going to be friendship. And where there is currently separation, there will instead be union. And God gave a physical representation of this promise by instructing Moses to build a tabernacle where God's presence would dwell. Consider how unusual and incredible that this actually is. The God of the universe, who cannot be confined by time or space, freely chose to humble himself to allow his presence to rest in a tent near the people of God. The same God who said in Isaiah 66 verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? This same God has personally instructed the building of a place where he would temporarily reside. That is stunning. That is shocking. Before the tabernacle was constructed, though, Moses would meet with God in a smaller tent that the Old Testament often refers to as the tent of meeting. I want to tell you about that from Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 9. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now, from this point forward, this cloud that we see being a separation and protection for the people of God, it protects those that God wants in his presence and it separates and keeps out those that he does not. We will see this occurring over and over and over, operating in a similar way to the cherubim at the gates of the garden. It is incredible that the Lord would condescend to commune with anyone. But notice that this communion was limited to one man. The pillar would operate just like that angel, keeping the one man in and everyone else out. The presence of the Lord, as we see here in the tent of meeting, was considerably exclusive. Later, The tabernacle was completed according to God's instructions. And in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35, we read these words. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now we see that this 
fullness is resting there in the tabernacle. Last week we talked about the glory of the Lord filling the heavenly temple. Now we're seeing it take place here in this tabernacle. But if you keep reading, you will notice that God's presence was not constant in this place. It didn't remain there forever. Verse 36 through 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys." But God's presence would come and it would go. And when he left, the people of God knew that was God's indication. It's time for you to move as well. Now the priests were the only one at this time allowed to enter. And the holy place was only to be entered by one person once a year on the Day of Atonement. And only that one high priest could ever go in. This tabernacle was filled with specific ornamentation that God had commanded to be built. Each one of these ornaments reflected a spiritual truth But perhaps the most central among those items was the Ark of the Covenant. It was just a big golden box. It was this big, beautiful, ornate box with two angels with their wings spread out across the top of it. And that is where it was said that God would sit on his mercy seat. And they were to carry this on long poles. Well, generations after Moses, after Joshua's conquest, after the time of the judges, came the time of the kings of Israel. And David was the king, and David ascended his throne, and he commanded that the Ark of the Covenant be moved to the new capital city of Jerusalem. It was to be a city where God would dwell in the midst of his people. Unlike Saul, David was actually desirous that God would be at the center of everything. But instead of moving the Ark, according to the standards laid out by God... They instead put it on a cart. And when that ox cart and the ox stumbled and the cart began to tilt, it began to fall off this cart. There was a man named Uzzah who tried to stop it from falling by holding his hand out and touching it to stabilize it. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, we read that what happened to him. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled or burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Holy God cannot dwell with sinful man. It does not matter what Uzzah's intentions were. He is a sinful, impure person trying to touch the holy. So the ark stayed outside of the city temporarily, but later was brought into Jerusalem with much rejoicing. And David began to look around, and he started to realize how absurd it was that he lived in a palace and that the presence of God was resting in a centuries-old tent. So he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar... But the ark of God dwells in a tent. But the Lord speaks to David that very night through the prophet Nathan. This is often called the Davidic covenant. And there are two central truths that I want you to see in this covenant that God made with David. First, God does not allow David to build the temple, but declares that it would be built by David's offspring. Verse 13. Speaking of Solomon, he says, He shall build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This temple would not move around like the tabernacle. This temple would be stationary. It would stay in that one location. It would be firmly rooted in this particular city. And this is why the city would be called the holy city, because God's presence was there. But there's a second thing that I want you to see before we move past David. Before God ever gets to the issue of building the temple, he first promises David something quite stunning and spectacular. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, he says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Now, so far, what are we seeing? These are the exact promises God made to Abraham being repeated now to David. And then in verse 11, he says, And from that time, and from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I am going to make you a house, David. You want to build something for me? No, 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 no. You have to get things straight. I am the one who has condescended to serve you. I am giving of myself for you. God was bringing himself already promising to bring himself low to serve us. A generation later, David's son would build the temple to the exact specifications God gave. And I want you to see what happens when it was completed. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord once again fills, but this time it fills the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Once again, the presence of God was pleased to temporarily dwell in an earthly building. And once again, entrance was limited to one person once a year. The high priest was the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies. Last week, we talked about Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God in heaven. We remember what it looked like when he was there in the Holy of Holies, trembling in fear of what was taking place before him as he saw the foundations of heaven itself shaking at the word of the Lord. But do you remember how the chapter begins? Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died. That is not just a throwaway line. God does not waste words. Uzziah is not one of the more famous kings. He is kind of there in the soggy middle of the genealogy of the kings of Judah. We have Jehoshaphat, and then Jehoram, and then Azariah, or Ahaziah, and then Joash, and then Amaziah, and then Uzziah. And I think if I were to ask you, what do you know about this man? Most would say, not much, if anything. But in Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, we read about how Uzziah was not satisfied with just being the king. He wanted to go beyond his role. So what does he do? He began to attempt to take on the role of the high priest. Now, why did he do this? He probably did this to assert dominance over the religious aspects of the nation, as well as those that were political. And we read in, in uh, 2, Samuel, or 2 Chronicles 26, 16, 
But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. If there's an object lesson in this, there it is for you. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That's not your job, Uzziah. That is reserved for one person to do. That is the priest's job, not yours. And we are told that there were 80 godly, faithful priests who tried to persuade him to stop what he was doing, but he continued arrogantly approaching God's presence in a way that God had not deemed appropriate. And what happened to him? We read in 2 Chronicles 26, 19 through 20. Then Uzziah was angry. He was angry that they were trying to stop him. So now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him and behold he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the lord had struck him he knew instantaneously this is a curse from the lord please understand this is not like a pimple leprosy was the death sentence of the ancient world and Uzziah was not even able to rule from this point forward from his throne he had to live in a in a house outside of the kingdom outside of the of the capital city where he would rule from that place because holy god cannot dwell with sinful man god's presence was exclusive it was even deadly to those who would come near This is why the people of Israel always had to travel to Jerusalem. Their place of worship was stationary. We don't have time right now to talk about the destruction and the rebuilding of the temple right now, but let's just leave the Old Testament with these principles in mind. Whenever, wherever God's presence is, wherever it dwells, there must be purity and there must be a response of appropriate worship. The sad thing about the Mosaic Covenant that I read to you earlier from Leviticus 26, is that the people of God never actually obeyed it. They never completed it. They never were actually able to accomplish it. They could not receive the promise of the fullness of God's presence like it was in the garden because they never lived according to the law that God had set forth. But now we come to the good news. Everything so far is about limitations of God's presence. But now we come to the really good news. There is someone who came who did follow the law. The book of John begins in the same place we began our sermon this morning, in the beginning. But this time, he says, John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And 13 verses later, we come to my favorite Christmas verse in the whole Bible. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word is that He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is now operating as the true tabernacle. He is the one filled with the glory of God, just like the tabernacle was. Or as Colossians 3, chapter 2, verse 9 puts it, for in Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is why Matthew 1.23 says that they would call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Himself came to walk around, not in the garden, but around with sinners. He himself being perfect. And when he would touch those who were stained with sin, he was not himself stained. The temple had been the place to encounter the presence of God for centuries. 
But at the arrival of Jesus, it was the beginning of a great transition. Jesus completely replaces the temple. He embodied the fullness of God and considered Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That would have been like a punch in the face to the Jewish people that heard him. Can you imagine their response? They would have seen this as absolute blasphemy. How could you say that you being here is greater than the presence of God dwelling in that building? What they failed to see is that the Son of God himself was the true temple standing right in front of them. And Jesus said something similar to the woman at the well. Do you remember John 4, this conversation? She tries to kind of deflect and get away from the fact that he's found her out. She's like, well, where are we supposed to go and where are we supposed to worship? Well, in John 4, 23, he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is supplanting geographical worship. He is replacing geographical, specific local worship in Jerusalem with the worship of himself. And this is why Jesus declared in John 12, I'm sorry, John 2, 19 through 22, this is when Jesus had first cleansed the temple by making a whip and literally chasing people out of it. He says in verses 20 and 20, uh, 19 through 22, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But then we get this little editorial note here from John. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the true temple. He is the one who tabernacled among us, and he himself was destroyed. The physical, earthly, temporal temple, when Jesus died, immediately began to show signs that it was of no value any longer. At the moment of Jesus' death, we read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was a miraculous event this curtain was thick it was heavily woven some say between six and 18 inches and it was ripped which no human being could do not from the bottom to the top like it would require for us to do but god revealing his own strength and power from top to bottom and what did that curtain separate it separated everyone but the high priest one time a year from entering into that holy of holies. But now anybody in Israel could go to the temple and they could see the presence of God is not in that room. He's not in there. We could walk in and not be killed. This place was no longer the dwelling place of God. The earthly holy of holies was vacant. It was completely empty. And to the people who were used to operating under the old covenant, this would have been terrible news. Where is God? Where is God? And then if you consider what happens here, I, I think this is one of the most astonishing things. The response as we read it from historians is some who saw this, we read in Josephus, they began to think, even the Jewish people think, I wonder if God was ever there. I wonder if God was ever there. They consider this like the Wizard of Oz. It's just a man behind a curtain. There was no one there. For those who were unbelievers in God in the Old Covenant, they did not see the true temple when it arrived. Instead, their hearts were hardened. But all of this took place 
because the old covenant had become obsolete. Jesus had made all things new. By his death, he had course-corrected all of human history. Without the central event of the cross, there would never be anyone who could dwell in the presence of God's love. None of us. You couldn't, I couldn't. We would only have the hope of living forever under his eternal wrath. But at the cross, Jesus reconciled man to the Father. Now we live under the new covenant. So for the next few minutes, I want to show you what the New Testament reveals about our privileged position that we hold with God. And I want you to be shocked at the amazing grace of God so profoundly that you can't help but respond with a heart of worship. You see, Christ not only came to be our temple, he also came to make us his temple. The epistles reveal this to us in two distinct forms. It speaks about the church collectively as a unit being the temple of the Lord. And we also see that as individuals, we are referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. One of the cornerstone realities of the Old Testament worship is that they were limited. They were exclusive. And not only to the priesthood, there were also cultural boundaries. There were national boundaries. Only the Jews were allowed to worship the Lord in the inner courts of his temple. But in the new covenant, there has been a tectonic shift in what worship looks like. Most of us in this room have no relationship to the nation of Israel. Most of us are not descendants of Abraham. But to people like us, we read that there is now no distinction. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where does God dwell? This is good news! saints there is a radical turnaround that has taken place we were once alienated from god but now for those who are in christ first corinthians three sixteen says do you not know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you someone might ask the question where are we supposed to go to worship god sometimes when i share the gospel with people who are clearly very unfamiliar with with the truth of the gospel, they're like, well, why is it better for me to worship in your building than some other building? The answer is that there is no difference between worshiping in our building and another building. There is no difference based on a building. This building is not a temple. This building is not a tabernacle. Those words do not reflect the new covenant realities that we are the tabernacle. We are now the temple of the Lord. There is no building on this planet that contains the presence of God. God dwells within his people. The key here is that you are the temple. This comes with great joy, but also responsibility. Wherever you go, that is where the presence of God is. The Holy Spirit is indwelling you. So allow me to close with three simple applications and a final thought. Application one. The marks of the temple are purity and sacrifice. 
Two weeks ago, we heard from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that you and I are called to be living sacrifices. Your life is like a temple. Your body is like the temple of the Holy Spirit. And your heart is like that altar. And you are called to lay your, your desires, your passions, your goals, your ambitions down. And you are called to be a living sacrifice putting to death the deeds of the flesh and pursuing righteousness. You are called to do that because God dwells in you. And you are also called to purity because you are set apart as holy to the Lord, just like the temple. So I exhort you not to let any unclean thing take place in your heart or in your words or in your actions. Application number two. I think probably the most overlooked doctrine of the new covenant is union that we share with Christ. It is simultaneously the most ubiquitous and the most underappreciated of the truths of the faith. Every single time that the New Testament uses this tiny little phrase, in Christ, you and I should have our jaw absolutely fall to the floor. Do you see what that means? It is the mercy of God that we are in Christ. Colossians 3.3 explains it this way by saying that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are able to be in the presence of God just like and only because Jesus has all authority to be seated at the right hand of the Father on high. We are in the presence of God because we are in Christ and Christ is in the presence of God. So please understand that salvation is not like a Christmas present waiting to be opened. It is not just getting a gift. Rather, salvation is the joyful embrace of the one who gives the gift. We are not just recipients of grace. We are recipients of God. We receive God himself. God has truly come to dwell with us. Think about the ways, the metaphors that the New Testament uses. We won't consider all of them, but just consider a few. That we are the bride of Christ. That he has this immense love for us. That he desires to dwell with us. Consider what it says about the vine and the branches. I don't think of all the seven I am statements, this one's my favorite. Because think about what it's saying. Think of the immensity of the reality that he is saying that you must abide in me like a vine is connected to the branch. You are intimately connected to Christ if you are saved. That all of the power that comes into you is sourced by him and not of your own doing. We see that God has truly come to dwell with us. So enjoy your union with Christ and realize that where you go, he goes. Application number three, perhaps the most obvious way that we take God's presence for granted is our lack of prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us this very famous passage. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uzziah couldn't do that. Uzziah couldn't get close. He was at the outer altar. If he went into the Holy of Holies, he would have been struck dead in an instant. But we can boldly go there. We can go there with confidence. This does not mean with a cavalier attitude. This does not mean that we go just... However we like, we still go in purity and righteousness and with reverence. However, we are called and told that you have the ability to communicate with the God of the universe by walking right up to his throne and asking. That is stunning. So church, I call on you to pray faithfully. 
not just as an act of religious duty and not just when you need something, but pray because God's door is open to you. He has condescended and bent his ear low to hear you. He desires for you to cast your cares upon him. Don't take that for granted. So now we come to our final observation for the morning. Earlier we see that God had promised to make a home for David. Well, Jesus made an even greater promise to the disciples in John fourteen three. He said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. But I want you to think rightly about our relationship to this final home. Marcus Peter Johnson says it really well in his book, One with Christ. He says, The church does not await the return of Christ so that we may be united to him. Rather, the church is united to Christ and so eagerly awaits the consummation of its union. As promised, we're going to end this sermon at the very end in Revelation. Although many people are confused and bogged down and challenged by parts of this really great book, I want you to see and know the end of the story. Uh, It should not be, our faith should not be shaken by anything that occurs in this life because we know what happens at the end. And this is what we see, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the end of the story. And what of the temple? Jump down to verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. And the Lamb. Jesus is forever at the center of our worship. He is forever the object of our praise, as well as being the conduit by which we worship. And for that, He is deserving of all of our honor, and all of our praise, and all of our adoration. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you desire to dwell with us. It is incomprehensible that you, the God of the universe, holy and untouchable by sinful man, desired that you would live with us. That you love the world so much you sent your son to experience the penalty of our sin. To live a perfect life and then die a sinner's death. God, it is incredible and amazing the grace that you have shown to us. And Lord, we thank you that if we are in Christ, we dwell with you. That your presence is with us always. We thank you, Lord, that you have now given what was in the Holy of Holies to dwell within us. We pray that we would not take that for granted. And Lord, I pray for that day when we will see you face to face, where there will be no earthly thing that would separate us, that this flesh would fade away. I pray for that day, Lord, that we would be prepared, that we would be so delighted in our union with you that we would be ready to see you in fullness. In Christ's name we pray.